This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. And as I've been saying, very excited for this week. Um, it's pretty it's pretty special what we've been able to do this week with the ASX, speaking to some of the best in the business, really, from all around Australia, covering a wide variety of topics, all of which uh, were covered at the ASX Investor Day. So if you're at the day and you want to relive the magic or you missed the day and you want to hear from some of the, the best speakers and get excited for the next Investor Day, um, then this week has been a great insight into you know, some of the, the content that the ASX is putting on. That is right. Uh, the next Investor Day should be sometime in November. So keep your ears and eyes uh, open and peeled <laughs> for that. Nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the theme of today's episode is uh, the fundamental rules of investing. And uh, we are very excited uh, to welcome Kyle McIntyre uh, to the studio. Kyle, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So Kyle is investment director at Firetrail Investments, the high conviction investment experts. And he ran a session at the ASX Investor Day uh, around three fundamental rules of investing. So we're going to spend the next uh, 40 minutes or so really uh, picking Kyle's brains on what those rules are and how it will help our investing journey. But as always, we'll start with our introductory questions. Uh, We always love to hear the story of our guest's first investment. Uh, Always a few lessons to be learned. So Kyle, are you able to share your story of your first investment? Yeah, for sure. We'll uh, have to go pretty far back in time because uh, I actually remember my first investing experience was actually when I was five years old. Nice. And um, at at the time, 
I was dying to buy a colour television. That was <laughs> that was really what I wanted. And and so my parents actually set me an investment goal, an investment challenge, if you like. And they said to me, well, Kyle, you can have a colour TV, but you've got to earn it. Um, and so they, they actually set me up an investment saver account. And so my first investment was in a very exciting asset class called cash. <laughs> um, but I, I, I remember it was such a good experience. I had to save for two years uh, to be able to, to be able to afford this television. I was doing things like cleaning cars. I was doing stuff in the yard. I was just doing stuff around the house. And then obviously birthday, Christmas, any sort of money I got, but I, but I finally got there and, and, uh, and, and got the color TV in the end. And, and I had it for like five or six years sitting in my bedroom. It was a, a real proud moment for me. So I was sort of hooked on the lessons of investing and sort of seeing the value uh, that can come from, you know, having having a goal and, and sort of saving and investing to get there. A lot easier at the time. The cash rate was around six <laughs> percent. Yes. Uh, so so today you wouldn't you wouldn't really be able to um, have that same sort of experience. But I guess you know, in, in terms of thinking about my my equities career, I, I was actually a, a really late starter. I, I didn't start out um, in the investment management industry. Uh, I, I actually started in advertising and then spent a, a big chunk of my career um, in a small uh, tech startup as as well, specialising in cloud computing and and that sort of thing. So that really shaped my first sort of equity investment decisions. Um, investing in companies like WPP, who who own Ogilvy and, and, and Mather and, and the like, and also investing in, in Microsoft. I was doing a lot of work with Microsoft. I saw how much the rollout of the cloud was, was taking hold. I saw their transition moving from Office 365, from being basically platform-based within within your computer to moving to, to cloud-based and, and what that meant. So, you know, uh, that was that was the start of my investment journey, but I, I don't think I was actually making proper investment decisions at that stage. You know, I was just sort of buying companies I knew, quality sort of sort of companies, and really didn't start to think about the fundamentals of investing in, until I went back to school. I did an MBA. I started learning about guys like Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. Um, I really got into behavioural finance with guys like Danny Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky, and 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 really found my passion for investing there. And, and joined Macquarie in 2013. I, I met the team that I work with today at, at Firetrail. You know, in, investment experts like Patty Hodgins. You know, 28 years as head of equities at Macquarie. Blake Henricks, who who was the co-lead of of the Aussie High Conviction Strategy there at Macquarie as well, and they really set up the fundamentals for me to make proper investment decisions, and and uh, that's really where I consider my actual investment journey starting. But yeah, it all all for me starts back when I when I was five years old, setting goals to buy a TV. Nice, love that, love that. So at the ASX Investor Day, you presented on the three fundamental rules of investing. Um, so we want to step through each of those rules in detail and uh, use some case studies to really illustrate them. But let's start general. Um, what are these three fundamental rules? Just so that everyone listening knows as well, you know, these are the same fundamental rules we apply at Firetrail. They're the same rules we applied back at Macquarie. And, and we've actually been using these for the past 16 years to generate, you know, outperformance out for clients. We, we think they work, they work well. Um, but the three rules are, number one, every company has a price. Um, and, and we can dive into what that means. Number two, focus on what matters. You know, there's so much noise when you're investing, whether it's news, media, social media, even just people in your ear telling you their, their <laughs> different views, the different views across the market. 
And one way to cut through that noise is to just really focus in on what matters, what's going to drive the earnings for a business, what's going to drive the share price into the future. And then the final one is to take a longer term view. You know, at, at, at Firetrail, a longer term view for us is around about three years. That's that's a really good starting point for making investment decisions. It's far enough out that you're making decisions that are different to the market, which generally looks around 12 to 18 months forward. But it's also not so far out that you're starting to, you know, throw throw darts into a cave and, and hope that you're gonna you're gonna hit the target. Um, I, I think three years is a good forecastable sort of range to start to think about companies, and it's also the same sort of uh, time frame that management use for their strategic goals, etc. So it really helps you to make, in my view, informed investment decisions that are a little little bit different to what participants in the market are making. So in your presentation, you used Qantas as a case study to explain these three rules. So let's use Qantas to sort of walk through each of those in detail as we spoke about, but also feel free to add any other stocks that uh, you've been looking at or that are in the portfolio to use as examples as well, because uh, at Equity Mates, we love stock chart. Oh. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you guys so, after my own heart. <laughs> so, so bring it on. Um, in your so let's start with every company has a price. Yeah, and sure. uh, in the presentation, you uh, your first slide was a picture of a, a, a rundown house, and then uh, a picture of uh, potentially my dream mansion. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you ask which is a better investment. Can you explain why price is the key determining factor for this? Yeah, for sure, Bryce. I, I, I show this uh, image to <laughs> investors all the time. You know, one of my jobs is to go around talking to professional investors, but also, you know, to mums and dads and, you know, just 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 your everyday investor. And I always like to take it back to thinking about buying a house as an investment uh, because investing in the equity market is actually very similar to, to buying a house. And you used the two examples before, whether it's a, a shack on the outskirts or a harbourside mansion, you know, there are some key fundamentals you want to know about that. Uh, the image I show people is of the shack in the Harborside Mansion, and, and people love to speculate that the shack is on acres and acres worth of valuable land. They love to speculate about the Harborside Mansion. I'd say it's generally 50-50 when I ask people which is the better investment. But the truth is you actually don't have enough information just by looking at, at, at two pictures. Uh, first of all, you don't know the quality of the asset. Second of all, you don't know any of the underlying fundamentals. What street is it on? What part of the neighbourhood? What are what are other houses going for? But the most critical piece of information you don't have is is the price. You know, in my view, you cannot make an informed investment decision without thinking about a price. And it doesn't matter how good an asset is, whether it's you know the nicest house in the nicest suburb with the best harbour harbour views. If you pay a billion dollars for that house it is going to be, end up being a really bad investment. And it is exactly the same when you think about buying a company. If you overpay for a company, whether it's a good company or a bad company, uh, if you overpay for that that um, asset, it's, it's going to turn out to be a bad investment. So our philosophy is that every company has a price. Knowing the price is absolutely key, but also knowing the value of the underlying asset is key to making good or bad investment decisions. Now, uh, for beginner investors, they'll often hear every company has a price and then they're like, yeah, but what what is what makes up that price? And then you'll hear, you know, experts say the present value of future cash flows. Can you explain, uh, I guess, how you think about what what the right price is for a company? 
Is yeah, it is it that sure. discounted cash flow or is it you know something else? It's it's different for every company. Um, you know, I, I still think one of the most practical measures in the market of of price is the price to earnings ratio, which is actually looking if if you think about it intuitively, the price to earnings ratio is just saying, okay, looking at the earnings over the past year or over the the next year what is the multiple of those earnings you are willing to pay? So how many years worth of earnings are you willing to pay today um, to have those earnings into the future? So, you know, using Qantas as an example, you know, historically Qantas has traded on around about a nine times price to earnings multiple, which basically means you've got to wait nine years. Um, if Qantas was to earn the same amount today over the following nine years, that's how long it would take for you to um, get your return on investment coming through, given the price that you paid. Um, so for me, that's a really, really practical um, in investment tool to use, but there are all sorts of different valuation methods you can use. You, you know, you can use a price to earnings multiple, you can use a price to sales multiple where you're just looking really simply at what is the price versus, you know, the revenue that business is earning today. You can use a discounted cash flow um, that you mentioned before where you're actually modeling out the earnings over the next, call it 10 years. You come up um, with a terminal time frame, call it 10 years for now, and then you put a, a, a terminal value on it, a terminal growth rate and, and a discount rate coming through. That's another valid thing. What I would say is it's it's absolutely different for every single company you look at. So if you look at the price to earnings ratio, if you're buying a really high quality business with really strong earnings growth, you're obviously going to be willing to pay more for that business. So the way I look at it is the average stock on the ASX 200 trades within the range of 16 to 20 times price to earnings ratio. A really high quality business with great strong earnings, you know, it could be a seek, it could be a zero. They're gonna have a higher price to earnings ratio um, than your average company. Then you've got companies that are considered value style businesses or, or more cyclical style businesses. It doesn't mean they're a bad business. It just means their earnings are more cyclical. They're more volatile in nature. Um, those businesses might have more debt, whatever it is. And Qantas definitely f fits within that bucket as a more cyclical value style business trading at nine times historically, if you look over the last three to five years as their average. Um, but that's how I think about it. It's, it's different for every single company. There are different valuation methodologies and you should use the one that makes sense um, for the company that you're looking at and the ones that you're comfortable with. Um, for new investors, you know, price to earnings ratio is a great thing to use at Fire We'll use price to earnings relative to the market because sometimes the market will be more expensive. Sometimes it'll be less expensive. But to give you an example, an insurer will generally trade at a 25% discount to whatever the market PE multiple is. It allows you to say, okay, well, looking at different insurers and where they've generally traded, does it look cheap today or does it look expensive relative to, to history? And if you find a company that's trading at a discount to its historical valuation range, that to me is a catalyst to do further research to work out whether the company's broken and not an investment opportunity or whether it can get back to that historical valuation and, and you've uncovered a, a hidden opportunity. So then, for example, Amazon is a trading on a PE ratio at the moment of 61. So if you were to compare that to market, you'd say it's pretty expensive. That's um, right. But then if you were to look at you, if you were to look at Amazon and look at the competitive landscape and you know its growth potential and you know other underlying factors, you get to that sort of growth v price dilemma. How do you think about uh, price, but then growth as well? Yeah, you you've you've hit the nail on the head with regards to how to think about it. You know. 
One of the simplest ways you can look at something like an Amazon is to look at its growth relative to peers and to look at what the market's willing to pay for companies that are growing at similar rates. So, you know, Amazon's a great example trading on 60 times PE, but if you look at it on a price to sales style multiple, it's probably only trading between two to three times price to sales. Um, And for a really high growth company, that might actually be the better metric to be using to compare that business because a lot of those earnings that Amazon are making, they're actually reinvesting into growing the business, into growing the top line. So, you know, the bottom line earnings falling out of, of Amazon really isn't the focus of the business. It's probably not the focus of Amazon investors either. What Amazon investors are more interested in, in, in my view, is the revenue line. So thinking of things like price to sales, they're interested in the underlying free cash flow within that business. So you can use metrics like a price to free cash flow, or you could use traditional metrics that are that are more theoretical, like a discounted cash flow um, to, to value a business like Amazon to be able to work out whether or not it's undervalued or overvalued. And the way I do it is, is relative to peers and relative to different growth opportunities that are growing at a similar sort of rate. Most importantly, though, looking at what you think that business is going to do over the next three to five years and how fast you think that business will grow over the next three to five years because history is history. Um, when you're investing, you've really got to look forward and and look at where you think that business is going into the future. Now, the history can provide some sort of guide and it's a really good basis, but you've really got to look in and understand the business and the different segments of that business to work out where you think the growth is going to come from in the future and, and where you think that growth rate will lie. So you've looked at a company that you think is interesting. You see that uh, on a relative basis to the market, their price to earnings is cheap, or you do a discounted cash flow and you think their intrinsic value is higher than the market price. Is that do you buy it instantly? Is that is that the end of the process there? Uh, no, it's it's it, it, it's not. It's not because the price is only one factor, and and so you know let's let's use Qantas because Qantas is a is is a great example, and it's an example I, I spoke to at the ASX Investor Day because I think it really illustrates this this philosophy that that every company has a price. If you rewind back to March 2020. Qantas, I mentioned before, generally trades on nine times price to earnings ratio. Back in March 2020, it was trading on four times price to earnings ratio. So the market was telling us one of two things. Uh, it was telling us, number one, Qantas could be out of business in four years. <laughs> you know, there's only four years worth of Qantas's earnings. Um, or n- number two, there's going to be a big capital raising coming or some big event that, that's causing a discount. And, you know, probably it was telling us a combination of of, of those two things. Now, at Fytrail, we don't just say, hey, it's trading on four times price to earnings. <laughs> wow, you know, you've put it back on nine times and you've got some pretty material 100% plus upside. Mm. Um, that's the catalyst for you to do the work. Yes. And that's a catalyst for you to say, okay, what are going to be the key drivers for this business? over the medium term or, or what matters for this business and moving on to that second fundamental investment principle, really focusing in on what matters for that business and what's going to drive that business into the future and cutting through the noise. Well, that is a great segue into the second fundamental rule of investing, which is focus on what matters. But before we get there, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. So, Carl, uh, we've touched on... Uh, 
the first rule, which is that every company has a price, critical uh, if you're looking to invest in individual stocks, but not the end of the journey. Uh, then the second rule that you spoke about at the ASX Investor Day was focus on what matters. And we love this rule because we are very strong believers and there's a lot of noise out there in the market. You know, people are trying to sell newspapers and there's sensationalist headlines and people are trying to get clicks and downloads. And yes, that's a, the game we're in. We're trying to get downloads. Um, but God, there's a lot of noise out there. So the second rule is focusing on what matters. Um, and you made you distinguished between what's interesting and what matters in your presentation. So maybe let's start there. Can you explain that distinction? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, investing is noisy. And you could look at that as one of two ways. You could say, wow, that makes it really, really difficult for you to make investment decisions. Or you can look at it and say, wow, that creates a really big opportunity for people who are willing to cut through the noise and focus on what's going to drive a business into the future, what's going to drive the share price of a company into the future. And and, and that really is the difference between what's interesting and what matters. And so, you know, if you go back to the, to the Qantas example, you know, Investing is noisy, but investing in an airline is absolutely deafening. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there, there are, there's so much noise when you're investing in an airline. You know, there's there's noise from some of the investment legends in the world like Warren Buffett who says, you know, rule number one of investing is never invest in an airline. <laughs> rule number two is never break rule number one. <laughs> but in 2016, you know, Warren Buffett was actually one of the largest investors in US airlines. Yeah, yeah. Um, Owned all four of the major ones. E e e exactly. And so... I guess rule number three is every company has a price yeah. <laughs> and and you can really uncover some material investment opportunities if if you take that philosophy into your investment approach and and focus in on on what matters. And so if you think about Qantas, some of the big noisy elements are things like the oil price, um, are things like um, whether or not whether or not, they're going to do the the Sydney to LA, Sydney to New York trip, um, and most recently, it's been whether or not international travel will open back up. But I'll let you in on a really misunderstood piece about Qantas. International travel does not matter for Qantas's earnings. In fact, if you look back in FY19, which was a record profit year um, for Qantas's profitability, the international part of the business was less than fifteen percent of Qantas's earnings. Wow. Now, if you want to understand Qantas and you want to know what matters for Qantas, you've got to focus on the domestic business. It's 85% of Qantas's earnings and it is what will drive the value in Qantas and it's what will drive the share price over the next three years. And just being able to look at Qantas's business, break down those earnings and understand that the international part of the business doesn't matter really opens up the opportunity in Qantas when you're looking at it. Now, for us, I spoke to going back to March 2020 and looking at what mattered for Qantas. And, and for me, there were two key things. The first was balance sheet and cash flow. Qantas had a problem. And the problem was that revenue had basically gone to zero in their, in their aviation business uh, due to lockdowns, and they were burning a lot of cash. So at the time, they were burning around $500 million in cash every single month. That was their cash burn. Um, and so as an investor, what I wanted to know is, number one, how long can Qantas survive in this sort of scenario, um, burning that much cash? How much cash do they have on their balance sheet? What are they doing to improve their cash profile? 
and what are they doing to improve that cash burn profile? And when we actually looked at it and did the work, which was can Qantas survive and how long can they survive for, it was really interesting. They'd they were one of the first to move to tap uh, debt or equity markets in March. They raised $1.05 billion worth of capital um, from debt markets in March. $1.05 billion, which was two months of burn rate. It, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't... Which doesn't, puts it into context. Yeah. Puts, yeah, it in, yeah. puts it into context. Um, but they'd already started to tap... Um, markets and the markets were open for them, which was which was absolutely critical. Um, and they actually got some pretty good financing rates. You know, today probably not as impressive, but at the time it was two point seven five percent, which was better than what you could get on your home loan at the time. Now today you can get a lot better on that on your home loan, but at the time that was pretty impressive. And the reason they could get that was because they were able to asset back it against some of their fleet. Now Qantas had that competitive advantage on their balance balance sheet where they had around five billion dollars worth of aircraft assets that they owned. And so they weren't even they weren't even backing it against a lot of that. So there was more they could use um, to be able to raise capital. But in addition to that, they were moving really quickly on the cost side. And, and to put this into perspective, in the six weeks since 20th of Feb 2020, the, the subsequent six weeks, they moved that cash burn from 500 mil per month down to less than 300 mil per month. And they'd subsequently get it to below $200 million per month on the cash burn profile. So putting that all together... We got to the scenario where we thought Qantas could actually survive with the cash they had and and with what they were putting into into place until 2021. In in a worst case scenario, we're talking complete lockdowns domestically and and internationally. And so we thought, okay, well, do we think things can get better from here at least domestically, which was the key part of their business? And and the answer was yes. Uh, we did think things could get better. We were looking at the US where travel was already opened up. Um, uh, within their own national borders, looking at places like the the EU, where countries were already starting to put plans in place to open back up. And we thought it was pretty realistic to think that there could be some sort of national travel bubble if we could get this under control. And so the second part was looking at the part of the business that really mattered and, and what we thought was going to happen in that domestic business. And when you look at Qantas's domestic business, there are two key parts to it. The first is the aviation business, which is around 60% of Qantas's earnings, so Qantas and Jetstar domestic travel. The second part um, is the Qantas frequent flyer business. Now, really interestingly, during COVID, the Qantas frequent flyer business was actually going from strength to strength. Um, I actually know, Bryce, you-, you That's because they turned around and said, uh, aren't we going to get rid of all our Qantas points so everyone come and spend and all this sort of bits and pieces? That, didn't they? That's right. But you you probably know from uh, from your time working at Woolies, Qantas's biggest frequent flyer customer is actually Woolies. Yeah, the rewards. That's yeah. right, the rewards. Every time you spend money at Woolworths and yeah. you use your Qantas frequent flyer card, uh, Qantas earns money. On those, on those transactions. They get paid for the points and that is one of the key ways the Qantas Frequent Flyer business makes money with their different partners. And Woolies was going through a record salespeople because people like you and I, we were hoarding toilet paper, <laughs> we were buying whatever we could and they were having record sales. So the Qantas Frequent Flyer business was actually really resilient and those earnings were quite resilient um, through, through, through that COVID period. And so we really just needed to dive deep into the domestic business and what we thought was going to happen in the domestic business. Now, when you look at the domestic business, there were some really interesting things happening in the competitive landscape. Uh, Virgin had just uh, was was going under. There was rumours they were going to be taken over by PE. They eventually got uh, taken over by Bain Capital. And 
what we've found when we've been investing at Firetrail and, and, and throughout our time is that competition is one of the key drivers of uh, returns and, and, and earnings for, for businesses. And if you can find a business with low competition where competitive dynamics are quite rational, what it means is that you can have better earnings than in more competitive environments. Now, this was exactly the environment that drove Warren Buffett to invest in US airlines in 2016. And so we had a really great case study for what can happen in an airline business when there's rationality um, in the competitive environment. They can actually be really great investments and be really profitable. And we were seeing the same sort of thing happening uh, with Qantas in Australia. It's been happening for a long period of time, but the acquisition of Virgin by private equity actually accelerated this. And it accelerated it for two key reasons. The first is Virgin, being taken over by private equity. Private equity obviously want to have a return on capital. Uh, they want to focus on profitability and they'd actually been out in the market saying, we're going to focus on capacity utilization, which means filling up planes, full planes are profitable planes. And they were going to focus on ensuring that ticket prices remained higher. So as a Qantas shareholder, that's music to your ears because Qantas having 65% of market share in Australia uh, would be the material beneficiary of a more rational competitive environment and higher ticket prices moving forward. So we actually believed that the Qantas um, competitive dynamic had actually improved. Yes, right now they had a problem, but looking into the future, that's the sort of market we want to be in as an investor is, is, is a rational market. And secondly, I mentioned the cost out opportunity um, that was going on in the cost out program that Alan Joyce and the team had started to embark on really aggressively stripping costs out of the business. But Alan Joyce has actually used this as an opportunity to right-size his business and to improve earnings margins across the business. To put some numbers around it, you know, he's looking to get the Qantas domestic airline business to have earnings, mar earnings margins or profitability moving them from 18% through to 22% in Jetstar, moving from 14% to 18%. And really most of that opportunity is coming from pulling costs out of the business. Um, and so we were looking at a scenario where right now things are really challenged, but looking forward three years, the competitive position was looking good. They were pulling costs out of the business. And when we ran that through and actually did the work, looking out to FY23, Qantas's domestic business, as long as things started to get better domestically, could actually be on track to do a record profitability year in the aviation business. The Qantas frequent flyer business was going from strength to strength. And we've just, um, well, I've prosecuted the case that the international business really doesn't matter all that much. So when you pull that all together and you focus in on what matters and what was going to drive the earnings into the future, it was, it was starting to look quite attractive in our view, particularly given the reaction in the share price trading on four times price to earnings ratio relative to its history at nine times. Yeah. How, you know, you speak of a time horizon of three years or so, but when you're doing that forecast in the midst of a pandemic that no one's ever seen in our lifetime. How do you forecast the uncertainty of that into a model over three years? You say that it could be pr more profitable than ever, but you don't know what COVID's going to do. So, Yeah, yeah. Great, great point. And that's where, you know, I investing is not all science. Um, there's judgment that comes in, uh, that, that comes involved. And to invest in Qantas, you, you absolutely had to believe that things were going to get better over the next three years. Um, and you could look 
at proof points uh, around the world that I mentioned before, areas like the US and, and in Europe where domestic travel had started to open up. But you're right, you know, there was judgment involved and you had to believe that things would get better over the next three years, that a vaccine, you know, eventually would come through or that we'd learn to to live um, to live with, you know, a, a virus and, and a pandemic and, and, and that, you know, we'd get through that part of things. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't without risk, but I think when a company's trading, you know, 60 to 70% cheap versus where it was in history, you're actually taking on that risk and, and, and taking on that risk at a materially discounted price. So we were happy to take that risk on. And you've got to remember when you're investing, you're not just investing, well, at least at Fytrail, you're not just investing in, in one company. You're investing in a portfolio of different businesses. And so you're balancing those risks across your portfolio just in case you aren't right. And we're not going to get them all right. Um, and, you know, I, I'd love to have, you know, a portfolio full of examples like Qantas that's up 100% plus uh, <laughs> since, since, since we uh, made the decision to significantly increase our investment there. But that's, that's not investing. It's about getting more right than you get wrong. And, and part of it is making a judgment call. Mm. Yeah, so it fell 70% thereabouts in the initial COVID crash and then it's, it's up about 100% from there. Mm. Pretty good call. You focused on what matters. <laughs> Focusing on what matters is uh, is absolutely key. But what I'd what I'd flag is we were holders of Qantas going into it, so you know we we wore some pain going into the event, and we had a decision to make at, at Firetrail, which was is Qantas going to make it? Do we still want to hold this company into the future? And is this a massive opportunity to significantly increase our position and make money from Qantas? And you look at it from peak to trough and then back up. And, and now Qantas has been a key contributor to our returns, even though we were holding it going into the pandemic. So, you know, it's, it's, that that's that's investing it wasn't it wasn't hey this pandemic's created an opportunity and we don't know anything about this business and we just invested in Qantas we were holders going into it and we significantly increased our, our position in it given the changing dynamics in the market that's interesting would your thesis have been just com- st- not starkly different but going into the pandemic you know the reasons that you were buying international business would have been flying like no pun intended (laughs) uh you know very different elements competition the competitive landscape would have been completely different so your thesis would have had certain pillars then COVID hits and you've just put your thesis forward and changing competitive landscape x y and z completely different had those two align or was there much difference like how did you sort of think through that they were totally aligned Oh really? Yeah, yeah, they were totally aligned. You know, so you didn't give, you didn't care about the international business beforehand, and it, you, it, but you didn't know what Virgin was going to do. Like the international business, it's just never been a key driver of Qantas's earnings, um, and the domestic business has has always been what matters and and what drives profitability in the business. And so, you know, we've we've been invested it at various points um, in terms of how large our position is in Qantas since. 2014. Um, and and the catalyst at 2014 was looking at the competitive landscape and, and what was changing and doing a lot of work on the US airlines and, and, and what had happened over there and using that as a case study for what could happen for profitability for Australian airlines. And the big shift for us was back in 2014, Virgin's um, commentary around looking for market share 
um, and trying to gain market share had actually shifted and they moved from trying to gain market share at any price and basically destroying profitability in the airline industry to saying, actually, enough's enough. We've got enough market share in the Aussie market and now we're going to focus on profitability. So competition was still the key driver of the thesis then. Where the thesis changed was we had to go into survival mode and say, is Qantas going to make it through this? Um, and and our view was if they could make it through and they had enough capital to get through 18 months or, or two years, um, we believed things would get better. And, and that really was where the, where the focus was and the focus part of our research. And also updating our views on competition, I do believe co- the competitive environment actually strengthened post that um, and and in particular for the domestic business you know those those earnings we believe will will be a lot stronger coming out of this than they were going in so a lot of the thesis focuses on like price rationalization um, and obviously the there's a big two in Australia virgin and Qantas but there are two other that are sort of I guess trying to be a little bit more irrational and take Nipping market at the share. Hills. Yeah, Rex uh, moving into some of the major routes and then Tiger as well. How do you think about them as sort of disruptors to this happy equilibrium that Virgin and Qantas seem to find themselves in? Well, the good news is for Qantas shareholders is that Tiger's um, been taken out of out of the market now, so you oh, don't need out. to. Yeah, you don't oh, need to I worry about. I completely missed that. You don't need to worry about. Uh, you don't need to worry about Tiger anymore. I'm but, only but, focusing on what matters, so I must have missed that. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness, world's worst airline. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely right. You know, Rex Rex is a competitive threat, and it's something when we're looking at our investment thesis or we're looking at what matters for Qantas. It's something we've got to follow pretty close. Um, and it's something we've done a lot of work on. There, there are a couple of reasons why we believe Rex isn't going to be a serious competitor. Um, the first is they probably don't have enough capital to actually compete um, in 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 the domestic market. They, they raised around 500 mil um, to be able to compete against Qantas um, and Virgin. And if you go back to what I was mentioning, the monthly cash burn for Qantas was before, it was about the total that Rex has raised <laughs> to compete um, in, in the domestic market. Um, the second is they're actually very different businesses. Although they're domestic aviation businesses, Rex's business has traditionally been propeller um, um, pro- uh, propeller um, driven fleet, which is very different to running a jet fuel um, style fleet. It's actually completely different when you look at the maintenance, the engineering, etc., um, that you need. And and so there are definitely going to be challenges um, for Rex, which comes back to the capital uh, that that you need to put into those businesses. And the final. Um, point there is the different routes um, that, that Rex needs to get into. So in Australia, you've got what we call the golden triangle of profitability in, in Australian aviation. It's Sydney to Melbourne, Sydney to Brisbane, Brisbane to Melbourne. And really that accounts for around 80% of profitability in, in, in the Aussie market. Sydney to Melbourne is actually one of the most profitable airline routes in the world. Yeah. Isn't it like the third busiest or something Correct. in the world? Yeah. Correct. And the key reason for that is is there are really no alternatives in Australia. You know, in Europe, you've got some great rail alternatives and mm. you've got similar in, in We have Japan. a train. It just takes 15 hours. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. So you can imagine hopping on for a business meeting and saying, okay, great. I've got to be there today, but I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 
the way it works um, for those different routes is they're basically allocated. Um, and, and so Qantas does still have the lion's share there. And, and so when you're looking at the routes and the availability of those routes and which are the most profitable routes, which generally for, for commercial, it's the really early morning route and, 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 and the, the flight home from 5 to 6 p.m. onwards, a lot of those slots have actually been taken by either Qantas or Virgin. And you just haven't seen those slots opening up for Rex, but you have seen a competitive response and, and the competitive response has been Qantas pretty aggressively going into Rex's um, regional routes and really looking to disrupt that business in their regional routes. And in my view, you need those routes to be profitable to be able to fund successfully going in and competing with Qantas and Virgin and, and, and what you're seeing is a competitive response there. What we don't want to see is rationality completely breaking down in in the market you know as an investor you're happy to see that competitive tension for a few months but you don't want to see profitability deteriorating and that's something we're monitoring it's a key part of the thesis is watching that um and and you're right you know things change competitive landscapes change and you've got to monitor that and update your views as as things change but we haven't seen any sort of real competitive threat that that, that would disrupt our thesis so far. So I just want to recap at this point because it, it we've gone deep on Qantas, which is actually, uh, it's been a really enjoyable conversation. But I think a lot of what you have said has really illustrated this idea of focusing on what matters. So mm. you had a pretty clear thesis around the competitive landscape and pricing rationalization. You looked at what um, what businesses in Qantas matter and what don't, like the domestic business is real, the real profit generator when COVID hit, you were looking at what matters in terms of do they have the balance sheet to survive it? And you were less worried about a lot of the news and the sensationalist headlines around COVID and international travel and all of that stuff. Um, new competitors come in and you look at the routes that matter, the Golden Triangle, Sydney, Melbourne, Melbourne, Brisbane, Brisbane, Sydney. Um, so like even in that pretty wide ranging explanation about a, a Qantas as a business, it was we're not talking about news headlines. We're not talking about Scott Morrison and the Virgin CEO getting in a fight in the media. It's There are key things that matter to the long-term profitability of this business, and that's that's what we're talking about. So I think that was a good illustration of focusing on what matters. Yeah. No, that's you've hit the nail on the head. That's it. Well, you did. I just repeated it. So. <laughs> Far more eloquently than I put it. <laughs> So then let's uh, close out with the third uh, fundamental of investing, which is taking a longer term view. Now, you've made it pretty clear that your idea of longer term is sort of three to five years, that three to five year mark, um, which I think, you know, we speak about investing for the long term on the show, you know, that 20 to 40 year mark. But (laughs) I understand when you're doing your modeling and looking forward, you know, that three to five years is where it sits. So then, you know, in the previous section, we spoke about focusing on what matters. How does an investor determine what news or expectations are like priced in and what is not when we're thinking about this sort of long-term view? Yeah, it's that's a, that's a really good question because, you know, so much of investing and finding opportunities is actually looking at expectations uh, yeah. across the market. And, you know, if you can find a company that's undervalued where expectations are really low and you've done the work and you've got a view that your expectations for that company are higher, you know, that that really is the key 
for what we look for at fire trail. That is the hallmark of what we look for in a high conviction um, position. Um, the way we do it at Firetrail is we look at consensus earnings across the market and we're actually aggregating um, what the sell side brokers uh, are looking at. We're looking at company guidance as well, where the company has guided and where our numbers are versus the company. And so, you know, to give you a really simple example, if a company's saying they're going to make $100 million next year and we've done the work and we believe they're going to make $120 million of profit next year, you know, we're 20% above where the company's guiding and then we're working out where the market is. You know, for your everyday investor, I think a really a really good guide is, is looking at where the company is guiding and you can find that information in their company presentations, which were all put on the ASX. So every time a company does any sort of event, a lot of these events are with brokers like your big guys like Macquarie, your UBS, and soon to be your Baron Joey's, et cetera. Every time they do one of those presentations, they actually have to put that presentation onto the ASX, they put it on their website and it's all publicly available information. And so you can actually use that information to get a really good feel for where the company is guiding the market. And often that will set where the market's expectations are for the business moving forward. And, and that's how you can get a good guide of whether or not you believe things are going to be better or, or worse than expectations moving forward. The second area is is to just look at what the price is telling you. You know, if, if, a, if a company's historically traded at 16 times its earnings and it's trading at 10 times its earnings, the market is telling you that expectations for that company are pretty low. Now, what I'd say is sometimes it can be justified. You know, if a business is in structural decline and, 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 and things look really bad, it actually deserves to trade at a lower price. The key is working out whether or not it's a structural issue or whether or not it's a cyclical issue that can be resolved with self-help or it might just be cyclicality in the market. Um, it might be a pandemic that we've been talking to, whatever it is. And that is where you can, can, can uncover some really outstanding, uncomfortable um, opportunities, but you need to take a medium to long-term view to be able to uncover those opportunities because the Qantas example is rare. You know, you don't usually make, views don't change usually within 12 months. Usually it takes a two to three year view and it takes a company hitting expectations, beating expectations repeatedly through time for the market to believe that things have gotten better. Um, and, and so that's why taking a longer term view is, is actually so essential because, you know, if you don't have that longer term view and you're waiting to be rewarded in six to 12 months, you're probably not going to see those rewards coming through. Yeah. Mm. Now, Kyle mentioned uh, <laughs> consensus estimates from uh, brokers and analysts, and um, that can often be hard for retail investors to find. Um, although Bryce and I have recently found a free resource that we use that aggregates a lot of that and is available to retail investors. Uh, it's ticker, T-I-K-R.com. It's currently in beta, so you can't sign up through the front door. But if you go to ticker.com slash equity mates, you can skip the wait list and have a look um, and it's free to use. So if you want to see what Kyle means when he's talking about consensus estimates, check that out. So Kyle, you said you think in sort of three-year terms, that's long-term for you. I do note that you've held Qantas since 2014, longer than three years. So um, I want to ask you about how you sort of go about updating your your thesis and you know you've held Qantas for what seven years now so is it every three years you look at the thesis you ask has it played out are we forming a new thesis or are we continuing to hold or is it something you're doing more regularly than that um, you're obviously thinking in three-year increments but you're holding stocks for longer than that so what's that process like 
Yeah, for sure. I, wh- what I'd say as a starting point is for a standard industrial style style business like a Qantas, um, you know, three years is probably the appropriate time frame because the company's planning out to FY23. You're reviewing their business strategies out to FY23. You're looking at their margins and earnings targets out to FY23. And then you're doing your own work to sort of say, well, can they hit those? What do we believe they can do? Um, and, and sort of doing the bottom-up research from there. You know, it is different for different companies though. And, you know, if you look at a business like a zero um, or a seek as an example, you know, you probably have to take a longer term view on those businesses to be able to see the value there because you've got zero going into new markets, whether it's in the UK and, and, and the US, and it's going to take longer for them to penetrate those markets and they might have a longer term strategy or longer term goal. So, you know, you've, you've got to use a time horizon that makes sense for your modeling. But I do think three years is a bit of a sweet spot where, where, where you can sort of do modeling that's a little bit more realistic um, and, and have forecasts that are more realistic. In terms of how we think about opportunities in the portfolio, yes, we're looking at three plus years in terms of the valuation and and the earnings profile of those businesses, but we're always looking forward. And just because a business has been in the portfolio for three years doesn't mean it's not going to be an outstanding opportunity to hold in your portfolio over the next three years. What I'd say is we run really concentrated portfolios at Firetrail. So our Aussie Equities Fund, you know, it's only 25 stocks in that portfolio. We've got an analyst team of of nine. Um, So, you know, you've only got two to three stocks per analyst that they have to cover within the portfolio. And and then they're obviously looking at, at new opportunities. And so they're always looking at the companies we hold in the portfolio. They're always looking at the industry that they're operating in and, and updating their views, updating their numbers, they're writing research notes consistently through time um, and really trying to understand those businesses as, as well as anybody in the market. And, and the reason for that is, you know, investing is, is a highly competitive sport. You know, you look at, you know, what, what's the pinnacle of sport in Australia? AFL, I don't know, how many AFL teams are there in uh, Australia? 18. 18. So in, in my sport, in, in investing, there are over 200 investment managers yeah. <laughs> in the Australian market, all trying to beat the benchmark, yeah. all trying to beat um, beat each other. And so we not only focus in terms of looking at stocks, we really build a focus portfolio and try to understand those stocks better than anyone else. And, and so we're consistently reviewing the companies in the portfolio, as well as looking for new opportunities. But I'd say 50% of our day is just being across what's, on the, what's happening in the portfolio um, and always coming back to what matters is it still what matters? Does that investment thesis still hold? Testing that investment thesis consistently through time and then incrementally updating our view through time. And importantly, that view is always a medium-term view looking forward because mm. investing, it's all about looking forward. It's, it's, it's definitely not about looking back in the past. If you get caught in the past and you extrapolate what's happened in the most recent past into the future, that's where you can really get yourself into trouble um, mm. in investing. So, Kyle, we've got our final three questions that we like to end every interview with. Um, but before we do, we'll just uh, take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. So, Carl, we want to first of all say a massive thank you for joining us today. Um, I think that conversation around the three fundamental rules of investing uh, was great and talking through the Qantas example was a really good illustration of that. I think our listeners would have got a lot from that. 
if uh, people listening want to find out more about you or about Fire Trail, uh, where should they be going? Just uh, jump onto our website, firetrail.com. You're not uh, you're not hanging out on any social media, not big on TikTok or anything. Oh no, you, you can you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, Kyle McIntyre is my name, but uh, but yeah, and and you know, Fire Trail has its own LinkedIn account. But no, we're not we're not massive on social media. But you know, if there's demand there, watch that space. Yeah, too busy analyzing companies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we'll get stuck into these final three questions. Uh, the first one is: Do you have any books that you consider must reads? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've actually, uh, I've actually got quite a few, so bear with me. Yeah, hit us. Hit us. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I sort of think about books that have influenced my life a lot, and the first one is a book by Paul Paul Arden, who's an advertising guru. He's he's very very uh, well respected in the advertising industry. The book is called "It's Not How Good You Are." It's how good you want to be. And I think, you know, for, for anyone who's looking to outperform or or do something special, uh, it's, it's a really great uh, book. It's a really easy read. You can probably get through it in 40 minutes. Um, the second one is The Alchemist. It's it's by a guy called Paul Paulo Chiello uh, and, and basically just covers uh, an individual's journey on, on following their dreams and, and uh Spoiler alert! It's about the journey. It's not about where you get where you get to. Um, but I suppose we're on an investment podcast, so I better talk about some some investment no, must reads. Um, oh, for me, number one is Warren Buffett's letters to shareholders. Mm. You know, you can find them on the Berkshire Hathaway website, and and they'll give you a really good fundamental understanding of how to think about a company, how to think about businesses, and and how to think about investing. Um, anything to do with Danny Kahneman um, and behavioural finance, really important. It'll give you a good idea of the psychological side of investing. So he's got thinking fast and slow, but you know, there's also a whole bunch of papers um, around loss aversion, et cetera, that, that are outstanding. And the, and the final one I'd, I'd give people is if you really want to get into understanding how to value a company and, and you're really interested in, in understanding the fundamentals of company valuation, uh, there's a book called Demodoran on valuation. Now, um, Asworth Demodoran is a lecturer out of New York um, University, the, the, the Stern School. And this is probably one of the best books I've, I've ever read that just gives you the fundamentals on how to value a company. You know, whether it's using price to earnings ratios, discounted cash flows, whatever it is, if you want to go deep and you want to understand how to value a business, it's, it's actually a really solid textbook. It's solid in size, but it's also uh, it's also solid in, in description. And he's actually got a really great website um, that that explains valuation techniques, etc. When you're looking to analyze companies as well. Nice, that's great. That's a good list. Uh, so next question: In sixty seconds or less, what's the best company you've ever come across? Uh, I still think um, going back to my cloud computing days, Microsoft is one of the best companies I've ever seen. And it might be for a different reason to what other people think. You know, when I was working for this cloud computing business, a big part of what we were doing was rolling out Microsoft products. And I just saw the network that Microsoft had and the ecosystem that they had and the businesses that they support. Our business was totally reliant on Microsoft products and rolling them out um, and, and transitioning people to the cloud. And their ability to add value to businesses rather than taking value away. You know, very different to a Google style business model where, you know, if you want to sell something, we'll take a clip of your money. You know, these are productivity tools that are adding value and and are actually creating, you know, five, 10 X sort of value for different businesses. If I had to choose an Aussie business that's doing a similar thing, I'd say it would be zero, you know, 
adding value in, in, in accounting, allowing businesses to do things more easily and continually adding value to that platform for, for small businesses. You know, I think that's a really high quality business. Doesn't mean they're outstanding investments because every company has a price. A good yep. company isn't always a good investment, but I think, you know, they're two of the best businesses I've seen. Nice one. And then final question, if you think back to your younger self, you know, saving up for that first colour TV, uh, what advice would you give your younger self? I'd say the power of compounding works in every single aspect of your life. And so obviously we've been talking about investing in wealth, you know, the power of compounding absolutely works there. But if you can develop good habits in every part of your life, whether it's your relationships uh, with your family or, or your kids, whether it's through health, your mental health, your physical health, whether it's through adopting a learning mindset, all of those small habits, those small positive habits applied daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, they all compound. Now, if you flip that on its head... Uh, and, and you take the inverse, bad <laughs> habits can also um, have a, a pretty negative impact on your life and, and they will compound as well. So stripping out the negative habits and, and acquiring some strong, good daily habits is one of the, the best things you can do and take advantage of those compounding effects. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Consistency is key, I think. Absolutely. So, Kyle, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um we enjoyed having you at the ASX day and this was uh, a really great insight into some of the fundamental ways that you're approaching your invest investment thesis. And I know that a lot of our audience would have taken a lot of value from that. So thank you very much. Uh, we very much appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I've loved being on. Thanks, Matt. And just a reminder that uh, for those that were unable to make the ASX Investor Days, uh, hopefully you were able to hear through this week that they've been uh, really valuable and we do thank all the partners involved and the ASX as well, but keep your eyes uh, open for tickets and news for the coming one in November or later this year. So um, yeah, we're looking forward to it. Equitymates Investing Podcast is a product of Equitymates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of Equity Mates Investing Podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Equitymates Investing Podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. 